HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program was brought to you by Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea. For more information, visit itoen.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Severin, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And today I just saw a red fox. That's the news. And we're in interview mode with Jessica, who is running a really cool operation, converting cranberry bogs back to organic and making juice for bartenders and beyond in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Hey. Hi. So let's go. We don't have, it always seems like we have a lot of time, but we never do. So let's just go straight into what is this business that you do and how did you get into it? So um, I guess the first uh, primary reason why I became a cranberry farmer is because um, I really like food and I really like to eat food and I love the community that surrounds food. And um, And my partner, Jared, is uh, is kind of in the same boat and we met in 2008 while I was working for a small organic cranberry, or not a cranberry farm, uh, a, a biointensive uh, vegetable farm 
And then a couple years later, the opportunity came up for us to manage his um, family's newly purchased cranberry bogs. And so we said that we would do that if we got the chance to convert them to organic. And so after um, doing a little bit of research, um, we <laughs> agreed that at least we would try it for a little while. <laughs> so that was quite a little while ago. And now you have this cranberry bog, and it seems like maybe you have a couple of cranberry bogs going on. Yeah, so we have a 10-acre farm. Um, we were the first cranberry farm in Washington State to be certified organic, which is pretty cool. Um, there's 1,700 acres of cranberries that are grown here, and I think there's 3,000 or something that are grown in Oregon. So the Northwest is a pretty um, small uh, sector of the industry in general, but there are there are farmers out here, and so we certified our bogs, and it was kind of against the odds. So if you ask, and actually if you still ask a lot of industry experts, they'll say that um, you know, organic really can't be done with cranberries, and um, there's probably a host of reasons why they think that, but there's not a lot of existing research out there. And so after we became certified, um, we were kind of like, okay, <laughs> what are we going to do now? It's, it's exciting to be um, the first, but we definitely don't want to be the only ones. And so we started working with other growers um, just that are right nearby our farm, and we have two that are going to be certified this year, so there's two other growers here. And then um, last year we just started working with a farm in Bandon, Oregon as well. So you basically started a cooperative-type function to add value to these organic, uh, to these organic fruits. Yeah, and we're we're not technically um, a co-op. We are technically an SPC, a social purpose corporation. Um, and yeah, and so we're we're working with other growers, and we do we do purchase their fruit at harvest, and we're also kind of helping them along the way because the demand for organic is out there, and I think a lot of growers also really want to transition, but it just um, the steps in the middle of how to how to get there aren't really clear, and they still aren't clear, and so you know we've been figuring that out for a while now, and with the help of the other growers that we're working with too, like they've had more experience. Um, working uh, with cranberries. So like I said, we were new to the industry when we started, but some of the growers that we're working with now have been, you know, third-generation farmers, and so it's good to have other people um, who understand cranberries a little bit uh, more in-depth working to solve this, um, solve these puzzles with us. Well, and so let's talk a little bit about the structure of the cranberry business and the, and the, and the shape of the puzzle, because one thing I learned when I was talking with you was how similarly organized the cranberry business is to the citrus business, and that the um, the processors, especially for foods that do a lot of processing, like cranberry for cranberry juice, is pretty. Um, I mean, not, the word isn't hegemonic. The word is um, homogenous in terms yeah. of there being not many paths to market, and that commodity is like a pretty simple. Um, locked in. Maybe, maybe you can explain kind of the structure of the cranberry business and where there's room for an entrepreneur like yourself to wiggle up a different way. Yeah, um, I, th I think I understand your question. I'll answer it, and if I <laughs> if I miss a point, you can help me along. <laughs> so, cranberry communities are you're usually pretty tight knit. Um, and you rarely find, like, a cranberry bog in an isolated location. Usually the communities kind of pop up together, and there'll be a lot of farmers in one place, and that way they can share processing facilities. So, um, you know, in our small town, there's probably 
I don't know, 300 acres of cranberries or something like that. And we have um, most of the farmers here are in the Ocean, Sp- Ocean Spray Cooperative, um, which is a farmer-owned co-op technically, but they um, aren't really prioritizing organic at the moment. And um, and I don't know that they're necessarily prioritizing farmers either. Um, and so they have a processing facility in town, and all of the growers that live here um, get to harvest their berries in the fall, and then they get to take them just down the street um, to the plant, and they weigh them, and they get to drop them off, and that's pretty much all they have to do. And so um, I'm sure you're familiar with organic and <laughs> and how um, <clears throat> the certification works, but it takes three years. And so in the process of us becoming certified, um, we work with the WSDA, um, and they had never certified cranberry. They had never certified cranberries before, so uh, a lot of it was like you know learning with them about. Okay, so we have to use a certified organic processor. Where is the nearest one? Because we can't use the one that's in our town. So you know we end up trucking them halfway across the state or something in order to get them processed. And so a lot of um, the opportunity, also the challenges, are like figuring out how to rebuild that. Um, you know the the supply chain or value chain or chain of operations to um, to be able to work for organic and to be able to work for farmers that you know both us and the ones that we're working with and we're you know like I said we're in Oregon and Washington so we're a little spread out. Well, and it seems like this is of course a model that if you're able to add value to a crop that requires a value chain to be a value to the producer. And the value that you add is also the support to go organic and a better marketplace. But that is a model that's really reproducible across sectors. Now, I know you're busy in startup and raising money and staying strong and brave in the beginning of a new business. (laughs) But I, of course, have to mention to people who are listening that this is something that's being explored in other regions and other crop sectors. And um, in Maine, there's talk about this. Um, for organic, more organic blueberry processing, um, because the furthest down east that there's organic blueberry processing is in Ellsworth, and most of the berries are processed and picked far, far further down east. So mm-hmm. if people are caring about water and aquatic life and the health of the land and the foxes that run across it, and are working to figure out infrastructure, economic infrastructure for organic, this processing element. Now let's talk a little bit about the juice that you make, how you make the juice, and um, what the secret to good juice is. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have the total secret to what good, how to make good juice, but I'll tell you how we make ours. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we um, started down the organic path. At that point, we were still in the um, in the Ocean Spray Co-op, and we dropped out. Um, kind of right as we were going to get our certification, and our yields had um, decreased enough that we knew that we weren't going to be a financially sustainable operation if we kept selling into the co-op with the commodity price. And so um, we started value-adding products, and a lot of that was just like trial and error. We did it in the kitchen. We made sauces and purees and juices, and um, we took them up to Pike Place that year and that harvest and, and sold at Pike Place, which is, you know, frontline sales is always really interesting. <laughs> and uh, we had 
uh, great reception for some things, and um, and others were, you know, n- not as successful. And I think we learned a lot regardless from that experience. And one of the things that we came away with from, from that and just from, you know, putting products out there in general were people, um, especially craft cocktail bartenders, uh, were really excited to have a 100% pure, fresh cranberry juice because there really isn't a product like that on the market. So um, we first just used uh, like a centrifugal commercial juicer that we rented in a restaurant space, and then we ran a um, crowdfunding uh, campaign to buy our first juice press. And so we use a hydraulic juice press. We never heat our juice, and um, and that lets it really retain its balanced fruit-forward flavor, and it really doesn't taste like uh, many other cranberry juices out there. So I think that that's pretty cool. It also keeps a lot of the beneficial health properties intact. And um, so you were just said something that was pretty interesting, which is the frontline sales experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, so, um, you know, up until very recently, we've built um, our brand and our sales on um, just really regionalized, like, direct sales and farmer's market sales. So I think last summer we were doing, like, close to 15 farmer's markets a week. And by frontline sales, I just mean, like, we get to talk directly to the customer. And there's a, um, especially in the Northwest, like, most of the time, that's extremely rewarding. People are really excited to be able to meet their farmer and um, and just tr- try the product, you know, and talk to you. But um, but <laughs> also, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's other markets and, and places where, um, like Pike Place especially, like it is a tourist market of of sorts. And so I think having just a pure cranberry juice product there was pretty tough to to sell. I think people would probably have liked it. Um, uh, in the in more of the like cranberry cocktail sugar water form, right? And so I guess what it, the lesson that you can draw out from that for new entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out where to place their product is that if you're going to try to sell it to tourists, make sure it has sugar in it. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Well, that sounds terrible. It's more just you know you have. I mean, I think that that was mouth. more of a lesson in just like. Uh, thinking about who your target market is and where those people are, I think that we were just really excited to get out there and talk to anyone. And so, and Pike Place is like, I don't know, such a revered market in the Northwest. It's like, cool, let's start here. And I think we didn't realize that that was going to be uh, so tough. Yeah, and so that even if you're, and so another lesson would be that, you know, exploring different markets and recognizing how different the appetite is in different places. Um, let's talk about raising capital and being a B Corp. We met at the Social Enterprise Social Venture Conference in San Diego, and there was a little, like, stand up for the young farmers moment. We were There were, like, five young farmers or five young people <laughs> in agriculture in the room. And you guys stood up, and we stood up, and then we met. And But maybe you could just a little bit interpret the process because so many of the listeners of this in the, in the Greenhorns community are selling more directly, more regionally, not doing a product, not doing pack, not doing so much packaging, but increasingly people are. Well, I'm kind of saying both things, but I'm seeing more and more people starting to do a product mm-hmm. on their farm and packaging it nicely and, you know, recognizing the value of a wintertime you know, cash flow extender yeah. and just getting a bit more complexity in their business. 
totally. Can you talk about how it's been going for you guys and some things you learned and that might be useful to other people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's challenging either way. I think um, we're still trying to find that sweet spot for our business. Um, right now we're kind of um, a tweener, so we're, we're not very big, but we're also not very small. And um, we're trying to figure out, like, you know, if we continue to grow, why we grow, um, you know, what's the purpose of that? And, and, you know, our answer to that at the moment is so that we can continue to work with, um, you know, new farms that are excited to transition to organic that otherwise wouldn't have um, a place to sell. And um, I guess I should maybe back up just a tiny bit and say that so our core team um, is my partner and I, and then um, two of my um, friends from grad school. So uh, we all went to Pincho um, up in Seattle, which is a sustainable MBA program. And so we come in with a little bit of background um, of business. And so um, there's all these cool models that are popping up, like I mentioned, uh, social purpose corporations, and like you just said, uh, B Corps, which is a third-party certification for businesses. And I think more than um, those really help, I mean, I think that they do help with uh, like having labels on packages, but, but I think more than that, it's a connection to the community, which is what the regional food movement is also about. So I think knowing your farmer, knowing your fellow uh, food makers is you know, for me, like, the really exciting part of the job, but it's also a really important part about, like, being a, um authentic brand and being in, um, like, really rooted in the place that you are and, and knowing, you know, how other people are doing and what they're doing and what their challenges are and how you can help each other because that, that seems to me to be, like, the most, uh, the best way to thrive when you get to do it together. And, and is there strong support, you know, in the in that social venture community, like, are people, wow, so exciting, you guys are starting a social <laughs> venture prize. Uh, I think so. so you know, wow, let's help you out. Or are you like, shit, it's so hard to navigate this and everybody knows each other and, like, um, what's the kind of feeling? I, I think it's both of those. You know, I, I think from, a, um, we're in the middle of doing our first um uh, equity raise, and I think for food companies, and I don't think it's with all of them, but I think ones especially that are heavily tied to their agricultural cycles, um, it's pretty hard to raise money because the models just don't work the same and look the same as what most investors that are coming from a tech background are expecting. Um, so it's been hard to get out and tell our story in a way. I mean, I think people are always really excited. They're like, wow, you guys are doing really hard work, and, you know, thank you for doing that, and let us know how we can help. But I don't think that um, it's been the easiest road for us or hasn't been the easiest road for us trying to raise money. And I think, you know, part of that, too, is we're still – uh, I mean, we learn so much on a daily basis. <laughs> it shocks me every day still. And uh, I think investors know that, too. They're, like, letting us, you know, um, learn our lessons, and they're, they're watching us. And the group of um, investors that we do have involved with our company are amazing, and they really care about the mission and values in our company, which feels really great as a founder to know that those are the people that I have on board. Um, and then, yeah, as far as, like, seeing the same people or, any, or, or being in the, a network and feeling like it's um, maybe small. I don't know if that was what you were getting at, but I feel like, you know, that, I think that's part of the deal. <laughs> it doesn't feel too small. It feels kind of like, you know, a community. Yeah, and well, and, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of tech background. There is a lot of tech money in the tech 
sector in California especially, that's a lot of the people who are looking at food and getting involved in food and investing in stuff generally. And it feels like one of the big projects for the agrarian movement overall is to help communicate to communicate clearly with adjacent communities and other parts of the economy the value of a regional farm economy and that that value is not um, limited to the food and that that's going to be like a project for the next 50 years is yeah. convincing people outside of our tiny little, tiny little minority sector um, <laughs> that agrarian issues and agrarian businesses and agrarian lifeways are important. Yep, that's the balancing act of every day, right? It's like learning how to speak the language of others and other sectors, but while also like really staying true to, you know, who we are as a as starvation alley and as um as a as a values uh based food company. Um so we didn't talk about why it's called Starvation Alley and we didn't talk very much yet about how cranberries grow and if other people could easily put a little bit of cranberries onto their land. Yeah, so Starvation Alley is a historic place name um, for the road um, right next to where our first cranberry bogs were. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, it was nicknamed that probably in the early 1900s, and it was where a lot of the day laborers lived for both the cranberry industry and the oyster industry. Um, we're kind of on this little peninsula uh, in the southwest corner of Washington State, and so um, you know, half a mile on the east side of our bogs, we have uh, the Willapa Bay, which is where um, lots of delicious oysters come from. And then about a half a mile on the west side of our farm, we have the Pacific Ocean. So um, so people have been uh, growing cranberries here for over 100 years, and um, Starvation Alley is definitely an, uh, a sort of eye-catching name, and mostly um, we kept it as our connection to place, and it's a great you know, conversation starter to get people to ask, like, why in the world did you name your food company Starvation Alley? <laughs> totally. I, I mean, I guess I should have asked it sooner. I'm kind of embarrassed now. Um, <laughs> and let's talk about cranberries. I mean, I've seen cranberries growing wild in Maine just actually on this historic fort. I saw them. They were growing up on the lumpy, um, what they called ramparts, or mm -hmm. there's another word for when they have earthen fortification. Somebody's going to probably email me and tell me, but, uh, and they were just full of, of cranberries. I was like, perfect retort uh, to the war, the war plan of this place. Tell us a little bit, please, about cranberries. Yeah, well, so cranberries are um, one of the few berries that are, um, that are grown as a commodity that are native to North America which is pretty cool, and they got their name because their flowers look like little cranes, so I think originally it was craneberry, and oh. um, I think maybe the ones that you're talking about could be highbush cranberries, but there's highbush and lowbush, and um, there's a bunch of different varietals, so some of the varietals that we have are McFarlands and Pilgrims and Crimson Queens, and they grow in um, often, so you can have uh, wet bogs and you can have dry bogs, and all of ours are wet harvested which is what you usually see during the fall, like someone in waders, like standing in a flood of berries. Um, if, if that's happening, that means that they're wet harvesting. And so um, they grow down in these um, sort of recessed pieces of bog or land, and they're probably inset about two feet. 
and that just enables um, the farmer to be able to harvest them easier. And so, um, yeah, they're perennial plants. They um, start to flower kind of, I don't know, end of May, and then we harvest, um, you know, given that they get pollinated, they kind of ripen throughout the summer, and then we harvest in late September, October. And that's when you see uh, we drive through with the tractor, and um, it's called a beater, and the beater is what knocks the berries off the vine, and they float because they have four little air pockets inside. And then we go through with um, what's called a boom, and it's kind of like an oil boom, so it floats on the top of the water. And uh, all of our friends, of course, and uh, go corral the berries into the corner, and that's how we take them out of the bog. Um. So what is the boomer, sorry, what is the banger, what is the thing that knocks them off? Is that like a combine? Uh, it's it's pretty small. It's um, it's called a beater, and it's a tractor that has just this little wheel on the front of it, and um, the wheel has, uh, they're not really like slats or paddles, but they're just these, um, I don't know, like little rods, and they, um, like the vines are trained, so cranberries are vines, they're trained in a certain direction. And so the tractor can go in the water, and it's driving over the top of the vines, and it just gently, like, knocks them off. Interesting. And these are these are native to North America, aren't they? They, they are. not. Most of the varietals that are grown now aren't the native varietals, but cranberries are native to North America. So they're growing ones from Norway or something? No, most of the ones here, hybrids that were developed either like in Wisconsin or at Rutgers. So they're not native in that they're not like their ancestors, but they are they're not similar. brought in from Asia or Northern Europe. I don't so, really know if they have Asian cranberries. I just made that up. I know that they have cranberries in Northern Europe and like Poland and Norway and Sweden. And I think that there's like a, again, a, a number of different varietals. And I think, I mean, I've heard, I have yet to find, but there are wild cranberries supposedly like on the peninsula where we live. So, and I think that might've been what you were talking about earlier too. Yeah. They're very small, like the size of an eraser, mm-hmm. like of, an, of a mechanical pencil eraser, not a, like a, like not big. Yeah. Not plump. And, okay, so another, just one last thing is, well, unless you have something you want to talk about, so I'm going to have one question, then you get one question. Okay. <laughs> okay, you get your question. Okay, I'll do my question first. So just briefly, I've been out in the forest collecting elderflowers, and I went through a thing a couple of years ago where I made a bunch of elderflower syrup, and we had a big party in Brooklyn, and I sold literally $600 worth of elderflower products nice. over the course of a weekend, and it was so great. Um, and then I thought, oh, wow, we got to sell to bartenders. Bartenders are the best. They don't mind shelling out. But maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe you could give some lessons to other people who might have the same idea um, with specialty-type things. Yeah, specifically to bars. bartenders? How do you market to them? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, it, they're kind of an interesting breed. They're They're the best, but they also, I mean, a lot of them, it depends. Um, you know, they kind of want to find their own secrets and make their own things. So I think for us it was really great because we have a pure product. We're like, yeah, you have to add your own sugar. And I think for most of the bartenders that was really exciting. For some of them they're like, no, I want you to add the sugar and I want you to dilute it to the perfect ratio so that I can just pour it, you know, with vodka. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And so I think it, you know, it'll depend on the type of bars that you're stopping into, but they are price sensitive. Most of them can tell you like exactly what their costs are into each drink. And I think at the beginning they were like, you know, there was some that were like, wow, this is really great, but it's kind of out of our price range for the, you know, for what we sell cocktails at and what our customers expect to see cocktails at. So I think, again, it's just, you know, you gotta got to go in and talk to them. But they also just, you know, they're, they're foodies and they love to learn about something, if nothing else. So usually they're pretty excited just to um, try new products. And, and you know, if they, if they end up using them or not is <laughs> pretty variable. Wow, so interesting. They know their price per drink, like, down to the cents. Yeah, yeah, most of them can say, like, this is how much we have in other ingredients, and this is how much our liquor is in this drink, yeah. That's a good That's a good practice to learn. So mm-hmm. maybe the thing about the bartenders is <laughs> good, good business. a bartender. Uh, <laughs> in there. Wait, say it again. Oh, I just said that, yeah, it's a good business practice to, you know, know what your margins are on your products. Totally. So go next time you have to write an enterprise budget, go to a bar and hang out with the bartender and have them help you. Uh, <laughs> we've done a lot of business planning at bars, so I guess I guess I can buy into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, any announcements you want to make or last thoughts or things that you didn't get to talk about? No, um, I don't think so. Um, I guess. We can get yeah, your product online. Yeah, I would just say that. Um, yeah, it's it's fun to connect with other farmers that are doing cool things, and we like to share our best practices. So if you know if you have follow up questions about B Corps or other things, let me know. Cool. So if anybody else is making juice, you can call Jessica up, and if you're in the mood for fun things to do, go visit another person's farm sometime this summer. Okay, that's all I've got for today, and I thank you so much, Jessica, for what you do and all of you for listening. Happy summer. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 